Hello, everybody. Welcome to Pet Talks, also known as the Pure Empathy Podcast. I'm Maritza. And I'm Shamina. Welcome, everybody. If this is your first time joining us, we are super excited that you're here. Shamina and I are two licensed therapists working to break down the stigma about mental health, as well as promoting mental and emotional health and wellness. We're super glad to have you listening, and we would love to have you follow along on our platforms. I'll have Shamina tell you about those. So if you want to learn more about our practice or interested in more content or other social media related things, uh, check us out on Facebook. Our handle is Pure Empathy LLC. Um, head over to our website, which is pureempathyllc.com and follow us on Instagram. Our handle on Instagram is pure.empathy.llc. We post all kinds of practice related updates, any social media updates, podcast updates, all things related to mental health on all of those platforms. So check us out. Absolutely. Thanks, Shamina. So please follow along with us. It'll add some positivity in your feed. Now, let's go ahead and jump into today's topic. Okay, welcome back, everybody. I want to take a quick second and probably throw out a real quick trigger warning for this episode. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And as a result, that's the topic that we're going to be talking about. And if you're following along on social media, you've likely already seen that Shamina's got some really great posts out. And I just want to let everybody know, as we get into this topic, there are likely to be things that if you're a survivor of assault or have a loved one who survived an assault could be triggering. Um, So just proceed with caution if you do need to reach out to the resources that you have um, in your local community, whatever you need to do to feel okay. Um, And that's just like a little quick, we are going to talk about these things um, and as we talk, we typically don't plan ahead very much what we're going to talk about. We kind of just honestly come together, Shamina and I, and we just, we just start speaking um, to each other in the way that we would in pretty much any other setting, (laughs) honestly. Um, And so I just want to throw that out there because we don't even always know what we might get into when we start talking with each other. And so I want to leave room for the fact that you may need to pause, take a break, or even stop listening to this particular episode if it becomes overwhelming for you. Yes, absolutely. And we'll have on social media, some resources for sexual assault. Uh, that'll probably go out while this episode will air before. So check social media for any additional uh, resources, because those will be up um, before this episode airs. Yeah, definitely. So April being sexual assault month, actually every April when this comes around, it's a reminder for me of where I began which is in a crisis center in the local community here. And um, it it really got me thinking. I actually started working with survivors of sexual assault in 2010, I think it was. Wow. Which... I know, which was, I had the same response. I was just kind of thinking about it. Even this morning, I was like, wow, Um, that seems so long ago, but I still remember it very, very clearly because um, for those of you who haven't heard my uh, origin episode, um, which is finding family therapy, if you're interested, I talked about that wasn't my uh, original goal. My original goal was to work um, in the grief setting. I was very interested in hospice 
and end of life care. And I wasn't able to find a, a placement during my internship. And I, my placement ended up being at a crisis center where the majority of our population was survivors of sexual assault, but we also worked with survivors of domestic violence as well. So yeah, it just makes me think of how long I've actually been doing this. And, you know, just when I originally really realized like, this is the work that I'm going to be doing as a therapist, kind of no matter the setting, because it, for those, again, who don't know, I work with individuals, couples, and families. Um, but regardless of that, it's, it's a trauma work is what I end up doing. Yeah. And that reminds me of, I was in college. I can't remember if it was, I think it was during my graduate program. And um, every year I went to the University of South Florida. So USF, they, they hold this event. And for the life of me, I cannot remember the title of it, but it's for survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence. And it's a very big event that, you know, the survivors will kind of come and like tell their story. There's like resources, there's lots of education and awareness. And I remember going and as you were talking of like, oh, this was my origin. And I thought this was my real first exposure before I got into counseling, of uh, what mm. this looked like. I had like the domestic violence side just from my own personal experiences, but being able to hear the stories of the survivors of sexual assault was so powerful and so moving. And naturally in the work that we do, it comes up and, you mm -hmm. know, it, it is the trauma work that a lot of us do and see. And I think it was a really eye-opening experience and humbling to be able to like witness and bear witness to like part of their healing journey and being able to vocalize and share their experiences in such a public platform. And it was really empowering. And I can remember, you know, you were like sparking. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about this in years, um, yeah. but it, I really enjoyed being able to kind of be part of that experience. Yeah. And no, we, we did a similar thing actually at one of the, at, not my, well, let me say this, my original placement at the crisis center I worked at, they did one too. Um, and then I worked in two counties. I've worked in Hillsborough and Pinellas here and each county has a big event like that. So when I was working over here in Pinellas, we had the big event and it was really cool. It was the first one I had gotten to attend. The other one was when I was a student intern. And I believe like that evening I had a class or some, there was some sort of reason that I wasn't able to attend it. Um, but people talked about it when we came back in our treatment team. So I, I still got to hear about it, but I didn't see it live. Like, oh, there's a client of mine speaking or anything like that. When I worked um, here locally, I did have a client that volunteered to speak at it. So I, I was like, through the whole experience, um, even though I'd been working with sexual assault and trauma survivors in general for a while, it was the first time that I got to see them like in a different setting and hear their story um, in that particular way. Like, of course, they had processed a lot in therapy with me and I'd heard it one-on-one -on -one personally, but seeing it presented to a large crowd and like the empowerment that you feel just even being able to witness somebody being that open about their experience is it's like the whole room is full of it. You know, you can just feel it everywhere. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very cool experience. So anybody listening, if you're, if you're really interested in this topic, this is something that's really, um, 
you know, maybe a point of advocacy for you or, or whatever, you have a loved one and you want to be a supporter, check out your local event because chances are there is one. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say, Marissa, is one of the most challenging things working with survivors of sexual assault? Oh, vicarious trauma. Mm. Listening to it all day sometimes. Um, and when I was not in this setting, I mean, now, so Shamina and I, um, we practice in private practice. This gives us a lot of freedom and luxury as far as how we schedule our clients and schedule our day um, and schedule just our weeks and how much time we take off and things like that. We have a lot more flexibility. When I was working in local community agencies, um, the schedule was very much full-time. I was there 40 plus hours a week. Um, and I always had a pretty full caseload because I, I was somebody who was always trying to meet my productivity requirement, even though everybody would tell me it's not possible. Um, I would still somehow do it. And when I was specifically working in trauma services programs, it was like one hour after another, after another. And I've always noticed um, in therapy in general, I kind of get waves of clients where I'll get like a cluster of clients all new at one time. And they kind of always kind of time out together in their, their processes. Now it's not perfect, but it kind of ebbs and flows is what I'm getting at. Like, so everybody will kind of be new all at once. Everybody will kind of be in the mid phase of therapy or the end closing phase of therapy all at once. Um, and with larger caseloads, it wasn't like everybody, but in general, there would be these really big waves, if you will, in my caseload. And so we would always get to a point where everybody's in the deep end and everybody's processing in the deep end. And that looks really different depending on who you are, what your, what your traumatic experience was and, and just what your needs are from the therapy. So needless to say, a lot of people would be processing, say the narrative, like actually sharing with me the story of what happened or similar work where we're really, really in it. And I had to learn very, very quickly, like as a, as a student intern, because this was the work I was doing then as well. How do I go home? Okay. After I just heard what I heard and it's honestly taken me many, many more years to realize, to really, really understand that at this point in my career, I have heard things that I tend to say now, some people don't know exist. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, that's good. If, if you're like, what is she talking about? Stay there. Okay. As long as you can, <laughs> um, because it's just things that, you know, are so far from most of us, or we want to believe that they are. And if, if it hasn't like come and hit home for you and you don't have something like this really near you, that's, that's amazing. Right. Because the reality is the statistics and, and I apologize because I did not I haven't looked at the actual statistics in a little bit, um, but the last time I checked, they had not moved. Um, So last I checked, the statistics were one in four. So basically one in four women will experience an attempted or completed sexual assault by the time they're 18. Um, the way I used to do this, I used to run a group and I would present it this way. I'd say, okay, we're going to do a count off and every fourth person is going to raise their hand. And when you do that in a big group, you start to see like what a big number that is. Mm-hmm. 
just think of any traditional American classroom, how many females are in there. And if we were to put them all together, line them up and count out one through four, how many would be there already like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And so just going through that hour after hour, even though we kind of know these things happen in the world, they're not so present for us. We can just kind of carry on about our day. But when you're doing this work, that is your day and learning how to like cope, how to do self-care, how to stay grounded was like vital. It's like, oh, I got to figure this out. Yeah. And it's, I think in our profession, we get, we, I had a professor in graduate school describe to us once, you know, how they explain what they do, what they do to other people who aren't in the field. And she said, you know, imagine the worst day of your life and now multiply that by five and multiply that by five days a week. And that that's what I do is like, I hear these stories of like the the worst days of somebody's life. And I can remember when I was working in the agencies, I was in supervision and I was talking to somebody and I said, are there, are there people who don't experience trauma or are there people who bad things don't happen to them? And so we can get so caught up in the trauma, in the negative, in these narratives that it can be hard to kind of like find the light or the goodness mm-hmm. in even in our own lives or just, you know, in our personal lives in general. And I think obviously I'm a lot younger than you and have not been doing this as long as you. So it's been a challenge to have to like find those moments of goodness is that not everybody experiences these really intense traumas, or if they do, there are still positive things or happy things that happen in life. And and how do we separate ourselves from that? Because we get everybody's deep, dark stuff that is hidden away. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and this is a thing for therapists. So if there's any other therapist out there, let's not diminish therapists who aren't necessarily focused on trauma work. Um, That's just the that's just the job. (laughs) Um, I think about when I do, so like I work with couples and families and there won't always necessarily be a specific traumatic thing going on. I do tend to get couples and families who also have experienced some kind of significant trauma because that's the type of work I do. So that's like what my marketing says I do. But on the other hand, I occasionally will get somebody where it's just, it's just relational. Um, and I, I shouldn't say just, uh, let me, let me retract the just, um, I don't want to you, I didn't mean to use it as a minimizer. It was just a verbal placeholder because I haven't taken any formal speaking classes. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so not a minimizing just, I promise. Um, but just to say that they'll have a, a relational issue they're needing to work through or something different that you wouldn't consider like a specific trauma. And those sessions can be just as heavy, just as grueling, you know, especially when you're working with family or couple dynamics, um, there's a lot going on there, but, but to say that, you know, that's a therapist day and that's what it looks like. And so we do have to do a lot of extra stuff to, um, learn how to manage that. And, and yeah, like it's one, it's just a matter of time shimming in before you're here and, (laughs) Well, we'll all see what, what you're up to when you get there. Um, I'm excited to see it. I'm sure everybody else is that's listening to, uh, but, um, to say, yeah, another thing about when you're new in this as a therapist is like my first client, I, I wasn't at progress yet. 
right? Because it takes a while to watch this healing process unfold for people. And a lot of our job is like just holding that healing space for them to do it in, you know? I mean, we have a ton of tools. We have a ton of things to help you like get unstuck when you're feeling stuck, um, to bolster your coping skills. Like We give you stuff. We're not inactive, but I would say one of the vital things that we have to have is like, they've got to feel safe in the container of the therapy session to be able to do the work. And that takes a lot of energy, right? To, to create and hold that space for a person, um, especially when you know what's going to be coming out. And you know, this is something very vulnerable. This is something very precious. And this person really, you know, deserves to be able to heal here from this so they can have their best life. And doing that is just, to me, um, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Just vital is what comes to mind. Like it's essential. So thinking of the pandemic, we're essential workers. Everybody (laughs) has experienced some kind of trauma. We're specifically though today talking about sexual assault. And when we look at that, those statistics for women are one in four. And if I remember correct, it might be one in eight for uh, boys basically, because it goes up to 18. Okay. So you're looking at under 18 statistics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll post some also, if you're a listener, um, I'll post that this week, I'll post resources and then statistics, um, for, for sexual assault, just to have like a a reference point. So if you do want to see these in a visual component, check out our social media, um, whether it be Facebook or Instagram, and you'll, you'll see some of those statistics up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always recommend RAIN. It's the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. So it's actually org, And that's where I reference the statistics that I'm talking about. So again, Shamina will double check those and we'll have accurate postings. Yeah. And I, we, we talked about this before we hopped on of, you know, like, what are we going to talk about? Where are we going to kind of go with this? But I, I think something that's so important in our culture and society is that we still live in a victim blaming society and that there are comments that can be made or, or things that could, could, I'm using air quotes here, could have been done to prevent an assault, particularly that are geared more towards women than um than men or or boys and i wanted to be able to kind of touch on that because we receive that messaging very early on and very young and it it gets kind of conditioned throughout these experiences you know i can remember i'm probably like 10 years old and i'm walking you know in the neighborhood or something and and a car drives by and like says something to me or you know you'd go by like a construction site and like people like stop and stare and as i got older even now like i go walking around and i have people talking to me and i'm like why i don't i don't need this attention i'm trying to go for a walk and enjoy my life um but we get these kind of like messages that, you know, be careful what you wear or when you go out or, you know, having to look a certain way, act a certain way and constantly being on guard and aware. And I, I think that in and of itself is very draining and taxing, at least in, in my experience, um, just kind of like growing up in the messaging that I've received is it's just another thing that I have to pay attention to and I have to be responsible for. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the messaging about what we wear, I remember that being really strong um, during the teen and the college years, 
right? So those are the years where, um, you know, your body's more developing, you're more shaped like a woman, even though, you know, you've still got a long way to go probably before you feel that way. Um, but your, your hormones are there, your body's, you know, shaping and all of that and developing. Um, and that's when we usually get a lot of, um, messaging about how we look and what that means. And also our value gets tied to it, right? So your value gets tied into the way your physical appearance is a lot during those times. Um, but we also see like, this is why most colleges have like programs in place for women who experience rape and sexual assault, right? Because we know the frequency that they happen around that time is, is quite high. And that in those settings, um, we're simply more at risk. Right. And yeah. Wow. I don't even know where I'm going from there. I'm just seriously thinking about it. Um, there's a lot out there. There's like, there's so much messaging. And I, I do know that, or let me say, I don't know. I hear, and it sounds like it's improving with younger generations. I'm hearing a stark contrast between the language that my younger clients carry versus some of my older clients. I do see that generation is really making a difference here. So keep going. <laughs> okay. For the younger people listening, keep going, keep pushing. Um, uh, we will listen eventually us older folks, but, um, help us get on board because I see it going in a better direction as far as like, we're not contributing so much to what we're wearing as the culprit for what causes these things. And that stigma has been around for, I mean, before me, right. Like it's, it's, it predates even my existence, like so, so far. Um, what was interesting for me was when I started working with the juvenile sex offender population, mm. it broke down that stigma around sexual assault. Like it was like a glass shattering. I couldn't, I couldn't even believe it anymore. Everybody has a totally different story. And I heard so many times that it was about that, about what somebody was wearing. Like, that's really the narrative that uh, these, some of these juvenile offenders would carry was that there was an enticement of some sort that pulled them in. And the therapist who facilitated these groups, I was just co-facilitating. So let me go ahead and say, <laughs> my role was to support and learn in this setting, right? And I, I did, you know, facilitate, but it was a co-facilitation. I was not the, the leader. Um, I was very much still in a learning place, but the person who did it, did it masterfully. And they would basically really challenge this belief for them that how can anyone else know what you and your mind believes is attractive, right? And he would kind of make the joke. He was like, well, what if you find Moomoo's attractive? Which if you're like younger and don't know what a Moomoo is, it's just like a big, like giant frock, frumpy looking thing, right? It's like a, a term for that. Um, so basically it'd be like looking frumpy, looking like not snazzy, okay? <laughs> and he would kind of say that. And he's like, well, for some people that might be very attractive. And, and it stood up time and time again, that there is no sort of necessarily universal that everybody is attracted to. We do know about like 
symmetry and things like this. Like scientifically, we tend to like symmetrical faces, et cetera, et cetera. But as far as like our personal, like what we're attracted to in another human, who grabs our attention when we're out in public, like whose physical look is alluring to you could be radically different to your next friend or the next one or the next one. And so the narrative that you did anything to provoke that act is so unfounded, but we've just continued to perpetuate it. And it's one that I really hope just burns in a fiery crash um, because it just has no merit. And it does kind of perpetuate the idea that your looks are your value and it's not safe to look too good or not too good in our world as a woman. Right. And it's generational. You know, it, it's been, the messaging is so strong that it, it has passed through generations and, you know, to the point that people very young, you know, like children, very, very young as we kind of get these like age appropriate, if you want to kind of phrase it that way, like messaging and how we're supposed to look or how we're supposed to act and, and these types of things. And it, it teaches at a very young age, a lot of shame and judgment that, you know, as you enter adolescence or adulthood or a survivor of sexual assault, now it's not only what has happened to you, but also how you view yourself because of it, or even how you view, viewed yourself beforehand because of the messaging or because of family beliefs or cultural, spiritual, whatever kind of comes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes me think of like placating a lot of times I felt like, and, and I'm not sure if this is for everybody, um, but I felt like the narrative where I grew up uh, in the South, uh, we're all very like friendly, hospitable, this kind of thing, which is, which is all great, um, but obviously still needs boundaries. And it was kind of like, if somebody say cat calls you or hits on you or, or a guy's like kind of doing an advance and you feel uncomfortable, calls you something, just kind of laugh, smile, whatever, just like placate him, right? Like, like placate what what he's got going on so that it doesn't become dangerous right that leads me to believe that i can prevent this yes i have control if i behave well enough if i respond to him correctly then he won't assault me okay and the only thing that keeps that man over there from assaulting me or any other woman is that he doesn't want to He's decided that's not a thing he's going to do. That's not what he's about. And he's not going to be a perpetrator of rape and sexual abuse. That's what stops it. Not me being a certain way, not me being like, hey, you can't talk to me like that. Me confronting you is not an invitation for aggression. Me telling you, you can't speak to me like that is not an invitation for rape. And me placating you isn't either. And we've been given a lot of narrative as women's that there's like ways we can move on this chessboard where we won't get hurt. And I'm going to call that out. That's BS. That's BS. This happens to brilliant women. This happens to strong women. This happens to women who are down on their luck. This happens to women who are rich. This happens to women who are poor. It, there is no, you're just a woman. So you're right. in the pool of people this could possibly happen to. Like I'm ranting, like raging. Not. A little bit. I apologize for the tone. <laughs> I get it. 
I get hot about it. <laughs> that is uh, Maritza's passion coming out. That is the passionate voice. I, I also love it because, you know, in therapy, when you're talking with a client and you get that like tone of voice and it's like, this is important. I need you to listen. <laughs> like immediately I was like, ooh, here we, here we go. We're here. You shift the tone. <laughs> I am now serious. Okay. Yes. I know. Seriously. Jot this down. <laughs> No, it's so true. I have a different like a uh, uh, tone. I notice when I'm going like deeper into an emotional engagement, I'll like switch this gear and I kind of like soften my tone. It goes a little lighter, you know, and I, it's not, it's not even something I think about. It just happens automatically. And then I'll hear it and I'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm doing the voice again, you know? Yep. Yep. <laughs> if you like speak very slow and like intentional and it's, it's yep. just, I feel very like political when I do it. I'm like, this is like my politician <laughs> voice. <laughs> this is how Shamina runs for office. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love yes. it. That's so good. I love that idea. <laughs> yeah. The, these are the, these are the little tricks we do as therapists, right? We just shift our tone. So when your partner says, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. They meant that that's, that's actually a fact. <laughs> it is how you said it. <laughs> we do say things with intonality in there that mean things for sure. Um, yes. But yeah, but yeah. Um, but, but of course not to make light of like a very serious subject, but of course I always say, um, and I'm have said this on another podcast, but when I've worked in um, trauma services where kind of like the whole building, that's what we do. Every therapist is there for that particular purpose. Um, people from other offices would often come and be like, how come everybody's laughing? Like, I did not expect this. And yeah, we, there's a lot that we do to get through and survive traumas and laughter is one of them right? Like if you can still laugh about anything, not about what happened to you. No, but because that's not funny. Um, But just about life, about other things, about yourself, about your quirks, about God, how rough of a week this was. I can't believe how hard this healing thing is, but like I did kind of watch a stand-up comedy that made me like pee my pants. So that got me through that low point or whatever, you know, we find a way to find humor in life because working through your trauma can feel very dark, you know? And the thing is, um, I kind of go back to like Carl Jung, you know, he's always trying to like shine a light on the shadow, you know, bring those dark places to light so that we can integrate and feel whole. And what better way to do that than through trauma work and trauma healing? To me, I've always seen trauma as that springboard for even more self-development and personal growth. And, and I don't mean that like you need it or that's what it takes. No, 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 no. But just to say, if you if you have experienced something, it's a great place to start right? To start healing some things. Other things are going to be um, coming up in therapy. So when I work with survivors of sexual assault, it's not all about that. So for those of you that may be kind of considering therapy on the fence about therapy, or you've had therapy, but you haven't quite talked about that sexual assault that occurred, right? And you're not sure if you want to bring that up, go there. I just want to say, it's not that every single session, we're not just like, tell me your trauma story over and over and over and over and over again. No, my gosh, that would be way too overwhelming. There's this whole process of like building safety. So you feel like you can talk about it, building up your coping skills and other things so that as you process what you need to process, 
if it becomes overwhelming, you can reground yourself. You can, you can do that. Let me close this back up so I can just go back to work or go back to my day. Um, the point of it is not to get you all feeling overexposed, although that can happen. So let me normalize that feeling, but to say that it's to bolster the coping skills so you can do that work right? So you can kind of go through whatever um, healing process you need to go through is. And even in session, it's not 50 minutes of like intense trauma or emotion or crying. I, I think, you know, I can probably speak for both of us at this time, but like, we'll, we'll have like these moments of like comedic relief, or it'll get lighter, or we'll change the topic and then redirect and kind of shift and refocus because it. I think we give our clients a different experience of how to talk about these really intense emotions or these really intense traumas. And it doesn't have to be so exposed or so raw and that you, you can still connect, but in a safe way, or you don't have to feel it all at once, but in pieces. And and that's something I really, you know, I, I talk with my clients are like, okay, we're going to get into trauma. Like, what does that actually look like? And so I give the example a lot, right. I'm like, we're wading into a pool. I'm like, I'm not throwing you into the deep end. You don't know how to swim. Like you don't have any floaties. Like you put your toes in. How does that feel? Okay, cool. And then we back out. And then maybe next time we're going like knee deep, like how does that feel? And so it's really mm-hmm. about learning how to sit with these feelings in a different way and talking about them in a supportive and safe and encouraging environment, because oftentimes survivors are shamed or judged, or people make comments that are very unsupportive or passive aggressive or judgmental. Mm -hmm. And so in therapy is something very different of like how, how to have a encouraging and um, empathic conversation about these things. Yeah. Yeah. Too. And, and this is where, you know, therapy does show up differently than like a really good friendship or like a really good supportive other, because you are working with somebody who is trained to hear what's about to come out. So again, like I talked about during my internship, I I really had to figure out like, how do I hold space for this person so that they can process and heal and like not take this home and just constantly be under the weight of all all of the the horrific things that happen in the world, right? And that takes a lot of learning and skill. And sometimes it's just like hours in the chair, like Shamina was talking about. She's like, hey, I still have moments where I'm like, hmm, how am I gonna navigate that one, right? Like, how do I, how do I cope? How do I bolster myself? Um, and yeah, like you're talking about, there's so many people around and narratives around and everybody might be in a really different place place as far as what they believe and what core beliefs they have around sexual assault. Oftentimes people have what I'll call well-intentioned loved ones that say really hurtful or minimizing things when they learn that somebody's experienced a sexual assault, right? Um, so this is where like a lot of victim blaming comes in and it can be difficult to know again. So I'm going to say like, this could also be generational. Sometimes we simply repeat what we were told. So unfortunately we do see that sexual assault can repeat through generations. Um, meaning, uh, basically the, the way that 
I've sort of seen it, heard it, and observed it over time is that silence can keep this going. So historically, it wasn't okay for women to speak up about this. And if they did, nothing happened, right? And and they may actually have consequences. So like, historically, women can actually be punished for being raped. Um, this is the story of Medusa, right? So it's as old as that for sure. And um, <clears throat> considering that you can see why women still wouldn't speak up, even though times are changing, there's um it's a deeply personal decision to report and go through the legal system for this because you may or may not get the result you're looking for. And um, I leave that to each survivor. I kind of support them either way they want to go with that. And I, I kind of say, like, if you need help kind of processing what you want to do, that's what I'm here for. But I won't ever tell you you have to. And I, I don't like the narrative of like you have to stop it from happening to other women. Um, no, that's the perpetrator's job. They have to stop assaulting people. That's what has to happen. And, and again, it puts a lot of responsibility on the woman, but as far as like family members, loved ones go, like Shamina was talking about, a lot of people talked about this in therapy, right? They'll, they'll just have like, do I want to tell this person or not? Like, do I want this to be known about myself? How, how, um, you know, out with my story? Do I want to be? And that's a really, really personal decision because the support can really vary. And some people that will believe they're being supportive will say very, very minimizing statements that will kind of trigger that um, victim response of it was my fault. And somehow I could have done something to, to stop this or prevent this. So how... How do you support clients who receive those types of comments? Mm, yeah, very delicately, right? Um, <laughs> like in so many ways, want validate, right? Validate, validate, validate um, that that's a real thing. And then I usually do, well, so being MFT, I am really highly interested and involved in your systems dynamics. So like, if you come into my office, even if you're an individual, go ahead and plan on telling me about your whole family and all your loved ones around you and all your support systems. Cause I, I gotta know, I gotta know what your network looks like. You are not a flying solo human. Um, so tell me about your environment, your life and your connections. They're, they're very important because I need to know like what that looks like for you in that landscape. Cause chances are they're going to be involved to some degree. They're, they're in your life. They're going to affect you. And those, those are very important relationships to you. So they're important in the session. And one of the things I really work with people on is like, is this someone that you do want to keep in your life? Or is this someone that you're like, mm, nope, that's a deal breaker for me. Like the fact that they said that, like it overrides the connection that we have, right? And so you can see this again, like with family members, like especially older family members who may hold their own, again, older core beliefs about these things, but then also could, you, I mean, you may not know, but they could be survivors themselves and they could be doing some bit of projecting, right? You know, because you, you might be taking a step that they didn't take and that can feel a kind of way right? To be open and honest about your stuff. It's, it's a 
it's a brave move, you know? And, um, so maybe they haven't been able to do some of the things you're doing and you're hearing a narrative that's really kind of negative. Um, looking at that, like, is that something that we just need to kind of get you some resilience and coping around because this is a person you plan to keep in your life? Or is this like a new boundaries, new relationships, new friendships kind of situation? Yeah. And I, I love that because there is this unspoken loyalty to our family or to our friends. More so, I see it a lot with, with family dynamics and systems is that um, we have to maintain some level of a relationship, even if it's harmful or even if it hurts us or we don't want to. There's just kind of this like messaging that we receive. And so I, I think being able to explore, is this a relationship that you want to keep or how, if, if so, how do you keep that? But also kind of putting these safeguards in place, protecting yourself, being able to advocate for your needs. I, that is such a empowering way to kind of like reclaim these relationships or even just kind of reclaiming your story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I always think of like, um, you know, the, the finding your voice kind of cliche, um, but, but it is something that we really do work on a lot when you're a survivor of assault, because it, it's not that you didn't say something, right? So let me clarify that. It's not like, oh, you could have said something to stop this. It's that going through these things tends to take away our voice because we realize at some point our no didn't mean anything. It didn't work. Like I, I said, no, and that happened anyways, right? Somebody was able to just blow through my no, like it didn't matter. Um, and learning that really upsets your worldview, right? It really shakes that foundation for you of what's true, which is like, I can hold my own boundaries and things like that. And so a lot of the work I end up doing on those days where we're not like constantly in the narrative, right? Is like boundary work, like setting up boundaries again, um, trusting that they, they will actually work, you know, in most settings. And again, taking the narrative from anything that has to do with you, right? Um, because survivors come away with a lot of guilt um, and typically a lot of shame. And so those emotions to me are one very heavy and also like very immobilizing because, and, and I believe we've talked about this before, but I kind of get on my rant of like, you cannot transmute guilt that isn't your own, right? So if I feel guilty, it means I feel bad for something I said or did. And so it kind of prompts me, it motivates me, that feeling motivates me to do something. And that behavior is usually like make amends, right? Like, oh, make amends for that thing that I did that I felt bad about. And um, that's kind of what all feelings and emotions do. But if the guilt is for something somebody else did to you, it's not truly yours. And your body knows that. <laughs> it knows it doesn't belong to you because you didn't do anything wrong, right? You, you didn't do anything. Um, you survived something and that's what you did. And that means something right for everybody. And that can mean a little something different. So just to kind of, as we get closer end and wrap up, kind of say, some people might be like, oh, I, I survived something and I don't feel like I need therapy. That's okay too. Right. Um, there's many ways up the mountain, many paths. So 
therapy is not the only way it is one. Um, and I believe it's a really great way to go through your healing processes through therapy, but traumas impact us all differently. So it's the personal impact that you experienced, which is the most important, right? Absolutely. And we hope that, you know, kind of the takeaway from today's episode is validation, education, and just normalization of how frequently sexual assaults can occur and being able to help kind of reduce the stigma of talking about it or normalizing it and just what what happens to people afterwards. Because I, I think, you know, the story ends and we don't see the healing process. That's not in movies. That's not in TV shows. It's just, we, we see the event and that's it, but we don't get to see the empowerment piece, the reclaiming your voice piece. And so hopefully this helps to shed a little bit of light of what that actually looks like in a therapeutic and clinical setting and how to be able to work with a professional in that way. And as Mm -hmm. Marissa said earlier, like if, if something has happened and you feel like you don't need therapy, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everybody's going to, going to have the impact they have. They're going to heal the way they heal. So really a big part of doing the work is like honoring your own process, right? That's the getting empowered again, feeling um, like you're in control of your life and that you make decisions for yourself. Um, So yeah, whatever helps you feel empowered, do more of that. So, so check in with yourself about that. But I also want to say quickly, if you're somebody who's really struggling with like a lot of um, victim blaming narrative, right? So you're kind of telling yourself in your head, like, oh my gosh, um, I, I shouldn't have had all those drinks. Then that wouldn't have happened. Or uh, why did I wear that skirt? Right. Or why did I turn down that street or whatever the situation is? Right. Um, if you have those going on, jot them down, get them out somewhere and pick a person that you really admire or somebody who really loves you and imagine that they're seeing that, like you're telling them that ride behind their eyes for a minute and find the way that that belief isn't true. Right. So kind of like I was saying, there's, there's nothing you can wear that would provoke someone to assault you. That's just like, that's true because I can't make somebody who doesn't want to assault me assault. Like I can't make anyone do that that's them doing it. They are in control of themselves. So in the same way that I kind of walked through that earlier, try to walk through a few of those for yourself if you can. If not, again, this is where therapy um, and other supports really come in to help you kind of break break those down so you can kind of get free of the chains there mentally, at least. Yeah. And as another reminder, um, check out our social media for some resources for survivors of sexual assault or just kind of awareness Um, And we will also have some statistics up on our socials as well, just to get a little more education on the prevalency. Absolutely. Yeah. And just final shout out, you know, doing my MFT thing here, you know, this does affect people in their relationships for couples. Um, So if you're a couple and you think that like a history of trauma for one of both of you is affecting the relationship individual therapy is great to go through that individual healing process, but you can also find people like myself who specialize in working in that as a couple, because I always say, as far as like PTSD or flashbacks, those middle of the night things that happen, I'm not there for those. 
but your partner is. So if you guys are struggling and you believe it's related to that, um, there are people that work with that. Yeah. So stay tuned for more content throughout the month and thanks for listening. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.